Oh, I see Greg and Tola snuck in the back. Ciao. Good to see you. Good to see you. And Chin came in. I didn't even see you come in. So good to see you. Did you have a good trip? Good. Good deal. I know that some of you, maybe not most of you, but some of you know who C.S. Lewis is, right? Some of you may have read his work, The Screw Tape Letters. Do any of you know this work? It's a wonderful satire. Uh, I would commend it to you all. The book is comprised of letters of advice from the senior demon Screwtape to his nephew, uh, the junior demon Wormwood. So Uncle Screwtape is mentor to uh, his, uh, his nephew Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned to a human being. They call the human being a patient, the demons do. Um, and his uh, assignment is to keep uh, his patient from the enemy. Now, who would be the enemy from a demon's standpoint? Okay, to keep their patient or their human being away from God immediately. In chapter 2, there's bad news. Um, the patient of Wormwood has made a profession of faith in Christ. And this is how Screwtape, the senior demon, counsels Wormwood. He says, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair, however. Many of these converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, and they are now with us. Of course, I need to qualify what C.S. Lewis is saying here. Obviously, he's not talking about someone who has genuinely born, been born again and has come to Christ. Because we don't, you know... Biblically, we understand that a man cannot lose his salvation. This is what the Bible teaches. So we understand that Lewis is not talking about that. He's talking about someone who's merely made a profession of faith in Christ, but he's not really a Christian. He's not really entered into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. Jesus. He's merely religious. He's, he's, as theologians would say, he's an unregenerate church member. He, he has not been born again. And for whatever reason, he masquerades as a Christian. Unfortunately, uh, this phenomenon is well documented uh, in the United States. It's an epidemic in the United States. George Barna is a sociologist, researcher, and pollster. Uh, some of you Americans will be familiar with his name. He compared the lifestyles recently of professed Christians and non-Christians using 131 different criterion. Guess what George found? Virtually no difference. Beloved, this is not biblical Christianity. <laughs> this is not biblical Christianity. I can almost hear Satan laughing. You know, he's not only the father of all the false world religions out there, he's also father of the counterfeit Christian faith, which predominates much of what is called Christendom today. Whether it's dead Catholicism or cotton candy Protestantism, the father of lies has done an excellent job of propagating what is uh, a sub-biblical version of Christianity. Listen to Screwtape Council Wormwood in chapter 9. Then I'll be done with Screwtape. But listen, this is a brilliant insight of C.S. Lewis. I love this insight. Screwtape tells Wormwood, Hey, talk to your patient about moderation in all things. 
If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good as, uh, for us as no religion and much more amusing. I think that's a brilliant insight. A brilliant insight by C.S. Lewis. Let me define moderate for you. You know what the word means. Moderate. Moderated Christianity. It means a modest Christianity, a restrained Christianity, an average Christianity, an ordinary Christianity, a diminished Christianity, a mediocre Christianity. Well, if you've been in this church very long, you know we don't preach that kind. We preach a biblical kind. Sold out in love with Jesus kind. That's what the Bible teaches. But we see this kind of moderated Christianity in much of what is called Christendom today. Much that passes for Christianity today is quite simply, beloved, biblically unrecognizable. It is simply biblically unrecognizable. It's the domesticated, dumbed-down version of Christianity. You know what I'm talking about. I'll just uh, describe it for you very briefly. It's, it's the kind of Christianity's merely mental assent to the historical facts of Jesus Christ. It's a little church attendance if it's not too inconvenient. It's maybe throw a euro or two in the offering plate, you know, whatever spare change I have in my pocket. It's uh, maybe serve the church in some way as long as it doesn't take too much of my personal time. Uh, avoiding the really bad sins. No killing, no adultery, those kinds of things. And maybe, if it doesn't make anyone too uncomfortable, to actually speak the name of Christ out in the world. Now, in my view, this would be a moderated Christianity. But when I read my Bible, that's not what I see on the pages of Scripture. When I open my Bible, I don't read about mental ascent Christianity. I read about hearts that are on fire. Anyone believe that? That's what I read in the Bible. I don't read about obligatory church attendance. I read about people who can't wait to passionately worship this awesome God. When I open my Bible, I don't read about those who just give uh, sparingly out of their spare change, but they, it's like you can't stop me from giving a worthy offering to my awesome God. That's what I read on the pages of Scripture. When I open my, my Bible, I don't read about just coming to church when it's convenient. I read about people who are pouring themselves out using their gifts in loving and serving the body of Jesus. I don't read about people merely avoiding bad sins. I read about people seriously pursuing holiness. And I don't read about people sheepishly speaking about Jesus, but I read about people boldly proclaiming Him in word and in deed. Moderated Christianity is no Christianity at all. It uses the name of Jesus, but it does not seek to be the disciple of Jesus. This is what we talked at length about last week. If you missed that sermon, go download it and listen to it. We talked a lot about discipleship. Salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. There's no dichotomy there. These are synonymous terms. The Christianity that's predominant today in what is called Christendom, for the most part, it risks nothing, it sacrifices nothing, it ventures nothing, and it foregoes nothing. Beloved, 
If you superficially read your Bible, you understand that is not the Christianity that we read about in the New Testament. Last week we saw an eager seeker of eternal life. He walked away from Jesus. No doubt he wanted eternal life. He'd have been quite happy to pray the prayer and, and to get wet. He would have loved to have just been a respected member of the local church. You know, the moderated kind. But he could not be a real Christian because he would not obey the Lord. He would not sell all and follow Jesus. He, would, he refused to be a disciple. And we talked about that at length. As we mentioned last week, there is a, a false gospel in vogue today that you can actually call yourself a Christian but never concern yourself with obeying Jesus or following Him in any serious way. This is sadly the, the gospel that seems to be most in vogue in our weak times. As I thought about all of this last week, if we got through with Mark chapter 10, the story of the rich young ruler, where we saw the true gospel presentation. If you don't know how to evangelize, go to Mark chapter 10 and look at how Jesus did it. Look how He did it. And we saw the true call of Christ to discipleship. Not church membership. It's okay to be a church member. That's great. The problem is most people stop there. Jesus has called us to discipleship to really go with Him, to really obey Him in a radical way, an extravagant way. We saw that last week. So it seemed good to follow up that message with what Jesus says a true conversion looks like in the life of a believer. It seemed like that made sense to me, at least in my mind. So here we are. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Actually, it's one of my FAQs as a pastor, my frequently, most frequently asked question. Is everyone who says they're a Christian a Christian? If they just say it, does that mean they're real? Well, we're going to find out tonight. Just saying it doesn't mean anything. We're going to look at that tonight. We're going to see that. You know, People say, well, my friend made a profession of faith and he was excited about Christ for a while, but now he's in gross sin and he, and he lives like the world. And he has no interest in Christ. I can't get him to come to church for anything. Is he really a Christian? Jesus may answer that question for us tonight. These are hugely important questions. I don't have to say it to you. Heaven and hell are in the balance. And Jesus is unequivocally clear in this parable. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 13. It's just a tremendous chapter. There's a number of parables here that simply describe what it means to be converted. What it looks like to come to Christ. These parables are very, very powerful. You heard the text read. I won't reread it. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus sits down in the boat and the multitude is on the shore and He begins to teach. Verse 3, He begins to speak to them in parables. Now, Jesus used parables in, in the form of simple stories as analogies for deep spiritual truth. That's all that means. And He starts to speak in parables. Verse 4-8, through 8, He recounts the parable of the sower. Some people say the parable of the soils. By the way, this uh, parable is in all is in three of the four Gospels. Again, obviously this is something the Lord wants us to understand. Three of the four Gospels. Verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus why He was teaching in parables. Verse 11, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, this is a rather startling statement for those of you who have never encountered it. Those of you who have never actually read this text. Most people will say Jesus taught in parables to reveal. What does the Bible say? Jesus taught in parables to what? Conceal. You may never have heard that before, but hey, it's what the Bible says here. It's amazing what you discover when you study the Scriptures. Some of you are aware that back in Matthew chapter 12, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And this seems to be a little, this seems to be a turning point in the public ministry of Jesus. After this time, apparently Israel has utterly rejected, the leadership of Israel has utterly rejected Jesus as her Messiah. And Jesus his, his ministry changes. He, he begins to point at individuals. He's, he doesn't call Israel. Uh, to repentance as in a corporate way, he begins to point at individuals and he begins to, to publicly teach in parables. So this seems to be a turning point here after Matthew chapter 12. God exercises His divine prerogative to judge those who are obstinate and willful and rebellious. So what's this about? Why is He talking in parables? that, that uh, are not clear to the multitudes, well, it's about judgment, quite frankly. It's about judgment. John 3 tells us that men hate the light and they love the darkness. So God in His righteous, omniscient, all-wise and perfect judgment is simply giving men over to what they want. They want darkness, He says, you got it. Now, we know that Jesus never refused to share the truth with any eager seeker. He always did. He's not being cryptic for some mysterious reason, but He does judge men who have rejected His words and His person. It's what we see in the Scriptures when God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. It's what we see in the Scriptures three times in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans 1.24, God gave men over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26, He gave them over to their degrading passions. Romans 1.28, He gave them over to their depraved minds. Listen to how strongly the Holy Spirit states this truth in John chapter 12, verse 37 to 40, which really underscores and amplifies what Christ is saying here in Matthew 13. Just listen, just listen for a moment. But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Today God of the Bible is presented in such a weak and feeble and pathetic way that men think they can play Him for a fool. They think they can presume on His grace, sin with impunity, and oh, maybe at the last minute, profess faith in Christ. 
Men think they can play God for a fool. Beloved, the biblical truth is men who presume on God's patience and mercy and grace will taste His wrath. And God in Christ begins to conceal the truth from these men who have willfully rejected the Messiah. It's why the Gospel is preached when it's preached properly. It's why it's preached with all urgency. The Holy Spirit says three times in uh, the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear His voice, what does He say? Do not harden your hearts. Run to Christ. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. There's always urgency in the presentation of the Gospel. So Jesus begins to veil the truth as He exercises His divine prerogative to judge those who are willfully rejecting Him. Verse 16 and 17, Jesus says to His disciples, Blessed are your eyes and your ears because they see and hear. For many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they did not. Beloved, I, I read this text and I just the, the question immediately came into my mind. Are you counting your blessings uh, in this regard? It's awesome that we're on this side of the cross. Amen? We've already seen it. Yes, that's God in the flesh there in the manger. Yes, that's God in the flesh on the cross. Unbelievable stuff. We've seen it. Blessed are we among all men. We see and we believe. We were enemies of God. Now we are co-heirs. The third member of the Godhead indwells us. The sec, uh, uh, two members of the Trinity are interceding for us. We have the complete Word of God in our hands. All of these things are breathtaking truths. Are you taking them for granted, beloved? Blessed are you. You should be praising God. I should be praising God for these unspeakably beautiful truths. These are indeed breathtaking. Shame on us. Shame on us if we take this for granted. Blessed are you, beloved. Shame on us if we take this for granted. Shame on us if we don't appropriate this power. Shame on us if we're not good stewards with this knowledge and enabling that God has freely given to us. You know, I'm always exhorting you to be a radical Christian. Do you see why God really expects you to be a radical disciple? He's given you everything you need. There's no excuse for you and I not to radically go with Christ. After that litany of... And that's just a small slice of all the blessings and gifts that the Lord has given to us. Let me ask you, Christian. Are you living like a disciple? Are you living like a disciple? Are you radically walking with Jesus? Or... Have you allowed your Christianity to be moderated as screw tape told Wormwood? Are you simply a church member? Or are you a disciple? I think this is the question before each of us tonight. And as I always do, I'm going to exhort you to lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Those famous words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I exhort you tonight 
lay hold. If you've not been laying hold, if you've not been living this thing with power, if you've not been living this thing with passion, if you have not fully given yourself over to Christ, and you're not really hot on His heels, I exhort you tonight, don't walk out of that door without doing that business with God. You give every day of the rest of your life to Christ. Oh, this is what He's called us to, beloved. Again, He didn't call us to church membership. He called us to discipleship. Go ye therefore and make disciples. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to be. So disciples come to Jesus and ask Him to explain uh, the, uh, the parable. And He begins to do that in verse 18. First, let me just give you a couple of things. I, I'm sure you already know, but the, the, the seed in the parable is the Word of God. The sower is anyone who sows the Word of God. Obviously, Jesus is the prototypical uh, sower. But anyone, you, me, anyone who sows the truth, who sows the Word of God, we're sowers. And if we're sowing the Bible, if we're sowing what God has said in Scripture, we're sowing good seed. This is how Karen and I see ministry. We simply sow good seed. I can't convert anyone. I don't try to convert anyone. That's not my job. It's not my job to convert anyone. My job is to sow good seed. And then God does what God does. The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does that heart transplant that only He can do. I can't take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. So beloved, you have all you need. You sow seed and you let God do what God does. You don't have to wring your hands about evangelism. You just sow the truth. Just sow it. Then God does all the heavy lifting. He makes the growth come. I love how Paul says it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, man, one sows or plants, the other one waters, but God's doing all the heavy stuff. He causes the growth. I love that. Man, that frees me up as an evangelist. It frees me up as a pastor. I don't have to convert anybody. I just have to be, I just have to have integrity with the Bible. That's all I have to do. That's all I have to do. And that's all you have to do, friend. That's all you have to do. First Peter 1.23 says it perfectly. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Secondly, the soils, of course, illustrate the human heart and the responses of the human heart to the Gospel of Jesus. So the way I'm going to teach this to you tonight. I'm going to go back to the original verses that uh, Dow read and, and, and pick up the, the actual parable. Then I'm going to drop down immediately and tell you Jesus' explanation of that particular part. Verse 3 and 4, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Uh, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Verse 19, Jesus explains that. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. This is the hard heart. This is the hard heart. Maybe it's just indifferent. Maybe it's hostile to the Gospel. We don't know. Uh, there's an Old Testament term, very colorful, that God used to use. This is a stiff-necked heart. This is a stiff-necked 
person. It's the heart of one who's utterly clueless about spiritual reality. They are oblivious to their origin, to their purpose, or to their destiny. They don't really care. They don't think about ultimate questions. They just live their lives. They just indulge themselves. That's the kind of heart that this is. I thought it's interesting that regarding this soul, if you read the Luke account, Jesus talks about the seed being trampled underfoot. And I thought that was an interesting metaphor, a very revealing metaphor. A heart so trampled down with the traffic of self-absorption, vanity, ego, pride, preoccupation with fleshly priorities that has absolutely zero concern for the things of God. As I contemplated this heart, my mind went immediately to Romans 8. You know the great text, for the mindset on the flesh is death. Because the mindset on the flesh is, anybody remember? Hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the hard heart. The second soil. Verses 5 and 6. Other seed fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Jesus explains this uh, part of the parable in verses 20 to 21. Jesus says, and the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the superficial or shallow heart. The superficial or shallow heart. Maybe a church member, but he can't be a disciple. Might be a church member, but he's never going to be a disciple. The soil looked good, but just under the surface, there's a layer of bedrock. There's no depth to the soil. The root has no depth. It can't get to the water. When the sun comes out, it burns up. It burns up. Jesus is saying, you know, hey, this guy looks like a real Christian. Hey, he heard the, the gospel and he received it with joy, but when it got hot, he bailed. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I've seen this many times. When the trial came, they left. They looked real. Man, I worked with guys like this. Man, they looked real. They seemed like brothers. You know, it was like the Judas, the Judas thing. Everyone would have said Judas was real. But Judas wasn't real. And when it gets hot, they leave. Merely religious merely religious. It's the kind of false conversion that is epidemic in the modern church. You know, these days, if anyone, I mean anyone shows the slightest interest in Christ, immediately someone wants to get them to pray the prayer and they want to baptize them. Even before they have a, even a, a modicum of understanding of what the Gospel uh, calls a person to do and be as a Christian. In my view, it's, it's a severe lack of understanding that biblical Christianity is ultimately supernatural. It's not about simply praying a prayer and doing an ordinance, beloved. That's not what it's about at all. It goes back to 
that heart surgery that only the Holy Spirit can do. That's ultimately what we're talking about. You know, it's our lack of understanding of the Gospel and it's our terrible, horrible evangelism methods that has filled up the professing modern church with unregenerate believers, unregenerate Christians. It's an epidemic, at least from the part of the world that I grew up in. What is it that reveals that the faith was never real? What is it? What does the text say? Affliction or persecution? Affliction, persecution. They never really knew Christ. They never really trusted Christ. Oh, they wanted all the benefits that came with Christ. They would like to have some of the benefits if they could, but they never really knew Him. And they never really trusted Him. They came to Him on superficial grounds and when it got hard, they left. They left. We know that the exact opposite is true of a true believer. God calls us Nike. I'll say it in the Greek. He calls us Nike. What does it mean? Anybody remember? We studied it in 1 John. What does Nike mean? We are overcomers. It doesn't matter what kind of trial or persecution we, that we encounter. We are overcomers by... Does anyone remember how? 1 John says we're overcomers by what? By faith. Good ladies. By faith. We overcome by faith. This is the difference between a genuine convert and those who are merely like Judas. I could quote, I could stand up here till I fell down and quoted verses about this truth. But I'll simply quote one for the sake of time. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He said, These momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We are not looking at the things which are seen. We are looking at what? The things that are not seen. We're looking at Christ. We're not focused on the trial. We're focused on Jesus. That's how the real Christian lives. Doesn't mean we don't hurt and have uh, difficulties. That's not what I'm saying, but... Preeminently, we're looking at Jesus. We get our eyes off this and we look at Him. And we get victory. We're Nike. We are overcomers by the power of God. The third soil. The third soil. Verse 7. Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. Jesus explains that in verse 22. Verse 22. And the one on whom uh, seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the Word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. This is the worldly heart. Again, could be a church member, but he's never going to be a disciple. He might be able to sit in church, but he really can't go with Christ. He can't go with Christ. The soil looks good, but it's unclean. It's full of weeds. Any farmer will tell you that indigenous weeds always have an advantage over a cultivated crop. And the weeds in this fallen heart choke out the good seed. The first weed is the worry of the world. I've seen this many times in 25 years in lay of vocational ministry. People who profess to be Christians, but they worry about every imaginable thing. We talked about it last week. 
Apparently, there is no real relationship with Christ. There's no real trust in His sovereignty. There's no real confidence in His promises. Jesus has commanded us what? Not to worry. Not to be anxious. He says, I know what you need. Don't worry. You just come after Me. This is the Word of God. We talked a lot about that last week. This person is dominated by his concerns about what he'll eat or what he'll wear or how he'll live. About his security and his comfort and his ease. The second weed is the deceitfulness of riches. I've seen this many times in 25 years. People who make a confession of being a Christian, but at the end of the day, they really love their money more than they love Jesus. They love their money more than they love Jesus. They never ultimately trust Christ. They really trust in their pile of cash. And they never really treasure Christ. They really treasure their stuff. It's the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus is unequivocal. Matthew chapter 6. You cannot serve Me and money, beloved. It cannot be done. I know it's hard for us. We're so prosperous in the West. Most of us are so prosperous you have to fight it, beloved. You have to fight it all the time. You have to fight it all the time. It's insidious. Man, you have, to be on your, you have to be alert. You have to be alert and fight it. The way to fight it is to give open-handedly. Radically give. Just radically give. It delights the Lord. Those who bountifully sow shall bountifully reap. Weep. Reap. Lastly, the fourth soul, verse 8. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a good crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Verse 23, And the one on whom uh, seed was sown in, in the good soil, this is the man who hears the Word and he understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This is the born again heart. It's good soil. It's soft. It's not like the hard-packed soil. It's deep. It's not like the shallow soil. It's clean. It's not like the weedy soil. It's the born-again heart. It understands the Word. And what's implied here? It understands the Word. But what's implied here? It does the Word. It doesn't simply understand the Word. It does the Word. It yields up a spiritual crop. He understands. And as James exhorts us, he is a doer of the Word. So what is spiritual fruit in the believer's life? Really, it's anything that looks, smells, or tastes like Jesus in your life. That's really a spiritual fruit. In my opinion, you might get a more technical definition from a, uh, a loftier theologian, but in my opinion, that's it. It's the evidence of the begotten of God, uh, that, that God's done that work in your life, that born-again work in your life. It's the aroma of God that permeates the true believer's life. I'll just give you some examples. It's a deep and abiding love for Christ above all things. It's a hatred of your own sin. It's a hunger after righteousness. 
It's a presence of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. It's heartfelt worship of Christ. It's obedience to Christ. It's living by faith in Christ. It's using your gifts to love and serve the body of Christ. It's living the Gospel before and communicating the Gospel to a lost world. Jesus is clear that while all true believers don't bear fruit equally, they do bear fruit. It is the hallmark of genuine conversion. If you're a real Christian tonight, there will be spiritual fruit in your life. This is the Word of God. This is not my Word. This is the Word of Jesus. Some of you may remember, and I'm going to close with this, some of you may remember uh, Christ's teaching in the upper room the night before He was crucified. You may remember He dismissed Judas. He says, go. Do what you must do. And then He gathers His eleven, His faithful eleven, and He begins to teach them. Do you remember one of the things He taught them? He taught them about the vine, about the branches, and about the fruit. Do you remember? And I'm going to close. As we look at John chapter 15, that great text, John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. He's not talking about a genuine Christian there. He's talking about the Judas branch. All these folks that profess to know me but don't, I'm gonna, the Father's going to remove them. He's going to take them out. You need to understand, you've got to understand context. He just got through dismissing Judas. So there's really no question that this is what he's talking about. Verse 2, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Listen to verse 4, Abide in Me, Jesus says, and, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can't do anything. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Beloved, I'm calling, you to, I'm calling you right now tonight. Walk out that door and bear much fruit this week for the glory of your Father. For the glory of God. Do it. Do it. You have all the power you need. The third member of the Trinity is inside. The second and third member of the Trinity is interceding for you. You have the promises and the power of God's Word. Go outside. Go out there and live it radical. And bring three converts next week. Okay? Bring three new Christians next week. Or if you just sow the seed, that's good too. Go out there and do it. Go out there and do it. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be My church members. Is that what Jesus says? He says, prove to be My disciples. You know, the ones that actually do what I say. Verse 9, Just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. Abide in My love. Verse 10, And if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you. Is anybody looking at the text? What does Jesus say here? Someone tell me. Because I want you to be religious. I want you to be, I want you to be miserable. I want you to keep rules. And I want you to be religious. What does Jesus say here? That my joy will be in you. Jesus says, if my people will do what I say, they get God-sized joy. They get God-sized joy. When they live their life the way I say, it's not about rule-keeping. It's about having an encounter with God. It's about knowing the, the most beautiful being in the cosmos. His name is Jesus Christ. And when He says, when My people do what I say, when they abide in Me, when they bear fruit, it's the best life you can have, beloved. There is no better life on this planet to be had than to walk with Jesus Christ. I love that promise. God-sized joy. And I, let me just give you a personal uh, testimony and then I'm done. The times I have most radically obeyed Christ. The times that I have scared myself obeying Christ. is the time that He comes so close. And I am so full of Him and so full of joy. And I just want to share that with you. And I want to exhort you I want to exhort you, whatever it looks like in your life, we're all, we all have different walks, we all have different calls. What does it look like in your life to be a radical disciple of Jesus? That's what I'm calling you to. Absolutely nothing less than that. Radical sellout to Jesus Christ. Starting now. Let's pray. Awesome, God, thank You for this invitation. Maybe some of us have been sitting in the spiritual recliner, but You love us too much to leave us there. I love, Father, that You forever call us to a higher place, a deeper place, a more lofty place, a more intimate place, a more passionate place, a more exciting place, a more thrilling place. It's just simply walking with Jesus. God, I pray we would hear your word to us tonight. I pray we would take heed. I pray we would make the application. I pray we would be fruit bearers in the world for your glory, for our joy. Lord God, we know what you have told us. We have but a few moments on the planet. We are vapors upon the earth. Lord, I pray we would hear and understand the significance of that. And I pray we would be good stewards of all the gifts You have given. Again, that we might bear much fruit for the glory of the Father. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. We are going to celebrate the table. Uh, as I said earlier, we have open communion here. So if you profess faith in Jesus and uh, followed Him in believer's baptism, you're welcome to partake with us. The way we do this is Tyler will play a song and um, prepare your hearts. Uh, confess your sin. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. But when you're ready, as Tyler plays, come up, take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat. And after Tyler finishes, I will stand and read a text and then we will partake of the elements at that time. Let's remember our awesome Redeemer and what He has done in our behalf.